Okay, let's go ahead and get started if we can. Uh, we do have an important announcement before we begin, and that is that the water fountain in the upper room does work. Yeah, I, I, this is, uh, it feels, mul has multiple meanings. There is a fountain of life in the upper room. I'm going to set it right up here. We like it so much. Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Did we lose the, um, where did the concentric circles go? Did those disappear? Oh, well, never mind. Oh, here we go. Oh, look at everybody's throwing curveballs out here. Stick this up on the wall, also. Okay, so let me do one last uh, illustration uh, that I didn't get to finish this last time about uh, philosophy of ministry and how it works within your uh, particular context. Um, a number of years ago, there was a, a pastor friend of mine who said, Les, it sounds to me like what you're talking about is simply... Uh, an operating system. Again, I apologize for all the geekery uh, illustrations today. It's as good as I can do here. Um, what's interesting about, you know, the iPhone, let's go ahead and take this, what I'm assuming most people have in their hands right now. <clears throat> what's interesting about the iPhone is Apple doesn't produce near as much software as they do hardware. However, there's a very important piece of hardware, uh, software that comes on the iPhone that is known as iOS. Okay, what are we up to now? 13? Version 13? 14. So we're at iOS 14 now. <laughs> I love the confidence with which you knew that. That's great. Um, so what is an operating system? An operating system is an environment. Okay? Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a set of laws and principles and, and guidelines, if you will, uh, for developers, like people who want to you know, make a gazillion dollars on your genius app idea that you have, to write applications for, right? So what happens is, is at RYM, we're trying to build an operating system for you so that you can go back to your context and build an app. You follow me? Most people, when they interact with their phones, interact with it through the app, right? I go here and I go to... What am I going to? I will go to Spark. Spark is my email app. I love it. But the people at Spark wrote this, and so I'm interacting with Spark, right? But what I don't realize all the time is Spark has worked a lot, worked very carefully to make sure that their email curator uh, or uh, aggregator, their email aggregator is, um, is functioning within the operating system that Apple has given for them properly. So this is a wonderful uh, illustration for what you're doing in your youth ministry. What we're doing right now is we're trying to lay out for you an operating system. Well, then we're trusting the fact that you are then going to go back to your particular context and write an app. But the question is, when you come back to YLT, we want you to do some debugging because we assume that in the past you've stumbled across things that for whatever reason weren't working. And when you come back here, you get, you, it's as if you're investigating the rules that are back behind what everything that you did were and seeing whether there was consistency across that or whether maybe something that you were worried about you shouldn't be worried about 
Or maybe there's some other tip that you might have missed your first time through the philosophy of ministry that you can continue to do. That's one of the reasons why we really never quit doing POM review. I, I did it for 25 years uh, with Reform University Ministries, and nothing was more healthy. I could sit and listen to someone else come up and describe the operating system over and over again, because invariably, I spent the entire time being like, okay, 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 okay. What, what, what did we do? What did we do this year? Did that work? What do I mean by work? Uh, was it okay for that work? Why am I so frustrated? Why am I in such a good mood? Even those kinds of questions at YLT are incredibly valuable for what you're doing because it's going to keep you from getting burned out. We want you to have a long tenure in youth ministry where you serve God's people well and thoughtfully so that by the time God calls you to something else, if he does, you can look back and say, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of what God built during that time and what, the, the way he got, allowed me to do that. It also means that we're going to be working very much in the realm of what we call models. Now, we don't mean models. We mean, this is the universal symbol for models. Um, <clears throat> models are, are, are charts and pictures. They're, they're graphs that we're trying to put together that help us conceptualize some of these principles as it pertains to a philosophy of ministry. So there's a, there's a, my favorite all-time organizational management writer uh, is a Christian guy out in California named Patrick Lencioni. And if you've never read The Advantage, Why Organizational Health Trumps Everything, you need to put it on your uh, recommended reading list. Uh, Lencioni is an expert at going into companies that have done well and have a low rate of turnover among employees and have a high rate of satisfaction among those employees uh, and who have product development that is actually benefiting the world and not destroying it. And he's identifying what those factors are that make those, th those organizations healthy. And what Lencioni says is this. He says, an organization has integrity or is healthy when it is whole, when it is consistent and complete. That is, when its management, its operations, its strategy, and its culture, there's that word again, fit together and make sense. A good way to recognize health is to look for the signs that indicate that an organization has it. These include, listen to these things. Does this describe your church culture? Uh, minimal politics. <clears throat> minimal confusion among people. High degrees of morale. High degrees of productivity. And very low turnover. Those are great questions to ask about that particular context. I'll say this. He also goes on to mention what the ideal team player is. You want to read his little small book called uh, The Ideal Team Player. <clears throat> and he identifies three characteristics. And uh, it's a fascinating sort of deal. He says, uh, the ideal team player is smart. That doesn't mean IQ. That means EQ. They're smart about themselves. They're smart about when they've got things going on and they're not allowing other people to hijack their emotions. They're smart. Secondly, they also have to be, um, man, I just went blank. Anybody read the book and know what the second one is? Smart. Starts with an S. Oh, 53. This is what happens. The third one, forget the second one because that's clearly not important. The third one he uses is the word hungry. Someone that's hungry, someone that wants to be there, that wants to see this get better. One of the reasons why you're in frustrating church situations is because someone on staff is not hungry. They're not wanting to see things get better. They're not wanting to move forward. 
And that happens all the time, by the way. And it actually becomes a, a cancer inside the organization. And it's a great question to ask people. When, what, when did you get jaded? When did you give up? <clears throat> now, a lot of people gave up for good reasons. They gave up because their wife got a cancer diagnosis. Or she gave up because she was 38 and still single and mad at God for that fact. Um, people give up for all kinds of reasons. Trauma can create that kind of thing. <clears throat> but someone who's going to work well with a team is always looking to say, how can we actually make this better? Um, so Lencioni comes in and says, therefore, there are six features of an organization that help people achieve this consistency. Or the word that he uses is alignment. Okay? It's all about alignment. Your organization is not healthy, in Lencioni's description, if it's not aligned. And that means that from the top educational, the top leadership value, all the way down to the janitor who's mopping the floor and setting up the chairs, everybody knows why they're there. And not only do they know why they're there, they know the purpose of their work. They have a job description that's been clear that they're living up into, that they're constantly refining and tweaking and working through. Um, they have um, a set of behaviors that they know when someone's gotten out of line. That is alignment. And so Lencioni says you got to look at these, these, these six characteristics to understand it. Think about your church in this way, and you'll be amazed to see how hard it is to answer this question. Question number one, why do we exist? Why are we here? Now, look, every church ought to be able to answer this question from the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're here to the glory of God, okay? Um, we're here to gather and perfect the saints. That's why we're here. That's the confession's language, Westminster Confession's language. Why do we exist? But I'll say this. You need to get a little more specific than that for your youth ministry. Really, why are we here? What are we saying as our ministry is really what, what, what drives us? Those particular things have to be completely idealistic and aspirational. Even though they need to be achievable, they need to be aspirational. you got to ask the question, how is what I'm doing every day in this organization contributing to a better world? Because that goes to your motivation. Why am I getting up? This is where burnout begins, is when nobody on staff knows why we're doing this. Oh, great, another staff meeting. Another exercise in pointlessness for that guy to talk and me to listen, and I'll feel bad about it and feel like I've wasted 45 minutes of my time, or two or three hours of your time. We don't do that at Christ Presbyterian Church. Right, CC? Right. Exactly. Number two, he talks about why, we, why, how do we behave? How do we behave? Now, this one's a little more subtle. So what he says is, is we've got to answer this question about um, companies that are able to say, what are the things that um, describe our personality? What are the way that we do things around here? What is it that um, we look at and we can intuitively see that when someone starts to act in a certain way, they're a little bit out of, the, out of step with us? What are those things? I'm going to match these to RYM stuff here in just a second, so don't let this get too lost in that. Because those qualities begin to inform uh, a, a set of expectations for what it's like around here. This is how we behave around here. These are the things that we do, the things that we care about. Number three, what do we do? What do we do? 
What, what, what is our product? What are we making here? Now, look, don't let that language be too corporate for you when it talks about a church. Of course you have a product. <laughs> don't get put off by the word just because it comes from a business thing out there. Don't you want to see people transformed? Don't you want to see people grow in grace? Don't you want to see people evangelize their friends and, 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 and uh, take up mission opportunities and start to um, uh, bring a world in life view to, uh, to effect on the world? Be, of course we want to do that. Yes, there's a product. What is it that we're in the business of producing? People don't ask that question. Which is, and there's a correlated question to that one. Um, how do we find success? How do we know when we succeed? How will we define those characteristics? Hey, by the way, one of the things that's the most powerful when it comes to these, uh, these characteristics that Lencioni mentions is how often... Um, you have to do this success on a micro level. And that micro level is probably year to year. Again, part of the sense of purposelessness that you feel in ministry is that we feel like we've settled all these questions. Uh, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, and the Bible. Is that your answer there? Okay? And they roll their eyes at it. And assume they don't have to ask that question. You're being like, okay, please, 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 I beg of you. Something tangible. So instead of saying... We're going to define success by whether we glorified God. That's not a goal, right? A goal is we want to make sure that we have at least 20 people involved in our such and such ministry or something. Give it a number. Now, look, don't be afraid to do that. You're like, what if we fail? Well, if you fail, then you learned something, didn't you? You go back and you figure it out. But if you don't have something that you're working for, you're going to quit working, period. How do we define success? Number five, this is a big one. What is most important now? This is when you start getting healthy. <laughs> you start getting healthy, ironically, with step number five, which is what is the most important now? What do we need to do today? What needs to happen when I get home? A little bit more fun to do YLT in January when you've kind of gotten midway through the semester and you've got a spring in front of you to sort of try things. But now you kind of got a summer that's about to hit you in the face and you don't have time to think about this because <laughs> it's way too busy in the summer. But this is a, this is a crucial question that, that people ask because we got to identify that thematic goal and say, if we could only accomplish one thing during the next X amount of months, what would it be? Sit down with your youth team and ask that question. Ask your session that question. Ask them to tell you what they think it ought to be. Nine times out of ten, ain't never thought about it. First time you ever thought, well, I don't know. Work there and, you know, help people. I don't know. I don't know. And people that never think about it because they look at the church as if everybody knows what the church is. No, we don't. Our, organ, our churches are not healthy in this, gar this regard. And then number six, who's got to do what? These are the roles. Okay. Now, what's interesting about Lencioni's categories is I think that RYM's philosophy of ministry maps very nicely onto this. Okay? I'm going to pull this up real quick so I don't mess up the lingo. I'm on a very slow internet. <laughs> there we go. Ah, there we go. Okay? So the first thing that we're going to identify as the, um, come back to me here. 
under why we are here is our purpose and our purpose. Reaching students for Christ, equipping them to serve in Jesus' church. What about this question about how we behave? Those are our presuppositions. Lots of people get confused about the presuppositions, but our presuppositions are, are about how we act. They're about the way that we interact with the world around us. Number three, what do we do? This is going to throw you off. These are our principles. In other words, what we do is we're seeing if we can get our students to embrace and come to be committed to a view of truth that's rooted in Scripture, a view of grace that's informed by justification by grace through faith, a view of change that's informed by our doctrine of sanctification, and a view of destiny that's informed by glorification, showing where we're all headed in that regard. So this is what I do. What do I do every day? Well, this is part of it. I am there to sort of get this across to people. How will I define success? Well, those are the goals. The goals function as those operating assumptions of helping know whether I got there. Well, how do I know what's important right now? This is why we talk a lot about the stages of group development. Help you figure out exactly where you are. That's what's important right now. And then finally, who does what? That's your strategy. This is what we're assuming you're going home to work out. Who's going to do what? What will be my responsibilities? What will I pass off to volunteers? How much time do I need to spend to train that kid to learn how to lead worship? Is there somebody that can help him do it better? <laughs> Everybody gets worried about that. So you see what I'm saying? RYM, this is my whole reason for going through this exercise, is attempting to answer the question of how you get aligned with organizational values that we offer to you as a recommendation. Some of you tweak them, some of you change them, some of you tune up the lingo here and there. But we believe we've got something that's tried and true that we can lean upon for future uh, generations. Okay? Yes, question. Of course, except I'm going to force you to, t to make tangible what faithful means. The problem with a goal is not, the problem with a goal is that I haven't been, I, it, it's got to be transferable. It's got to be measurable. And invariably what we end up saying is, you know, one of my goals this year is to be a better Christian. Okay. No, I've got to make that tangible. No, my goal this year is to read through the Bible in a year because I've never done it. And I feel like a Christian should do that. I'm just making that up, right? I don't know whether that's a good idea or not. Maybe sure it's a good idea. Read the Bible through the year, right? We decide we're going to do that. In other words, it's got to be something that I can measure at the end. But what I find way too often is people don't see the importance of goal setting because they've been too vague in its definition, okay? So, long, so I, you're totally right about what you're saying. Be careful about what goals you put, especially when it's, when it's got a number on it. 
I want to be careful about that. Even though that's not always a bad thing, the numbers can oftentimes come back and kick us in the face because we can, we can do short-circuiting around principles in order to sort of get the numbers there. But I digress. So it's a point well taken. Okay? I'll do one last thought before we dive into some of these, uh, some of these other... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of these other dynamics in a drawing. One of the things that I think we're also committed to in RYM, this is a new thought, um, is, is a distinguishment of ministry that, um, I don't know the way to say this, that has incarnation at the heart of it. And when I say incarnation, I don't mean the incarnation. But I do mean the incarnation in the sense that Jesus gave us a model for ministry. And that model for ministry cannot stand on the outside of the culture we're called to minister to and critique it from the, inside, from the, from the outside in. RYM is trying to commend a certain kind and quality of ministry uh, that that tells us that this culture that I'm creating is not going to happen unless I embody myself among the people I'm trying to minister to. <clears throat> In other words, we think that we sort of succeeded as a good RYM person because I adopted these values as my own. I don't get me wrong. It's not less than that. We hope you buy into some of these things that we're about to list up here. But that's not actually where we really root success. Success happens, <laughs> from our definition, when you show up in the midst of the chaos of people's lives. It's got to be an incarnational ministry to come through. In other words, just because <clears throat> I can repeat these principles and presuppositions we're about to dive into to my session or my youth team or even my students doesn't mean that I've embraced what we're doing. What it means to do ministry is to come and say, I have shown up to someone's life and I've helped them know why I'm there. For that reason, your philosophy of ministry is more something that you do than something that you know. It's not less than what you know. You have to know it before. But it's also got to be something that's enacted. But I will say this. We are reformed youth ministries. I do think that there is an inertia, a negative inertia, that oftentimes pulls reformed people into something that is gleefully academic and praise the Lord for it. But sometimes we can think that we've done ministry just because someone will check off and be like, I totally agree with you. Ta-da! That's not ministry. Ministry is me showing up in those places. Now look, this is going to be very counterintuitive for certain youth ministries that you have embodied, especially churches who founded themselves thoughtlessly with a protectionist mindset. Okay? Now, I'm not picking on homeschoolers or private schoolers at all here, but there's a question, a certain challenge that comes to people who have decided to homeschool of being challenged to make sure that my children do not glean from me that the problem with sin is out there and not in here. And what happens is, is there's, that, that is a counterexample for people to know that my ministry has got to be engaged with people. It's got to be among those people. Jesus's, the essence of Jesus' ministry was to show up not just in the midst of religious people. They all thought that there was something wrong with him because of the bad people he was hanging out with. Why? Because those are the people he came to redeem. Now look, 
Is there wisdom in knowing that I don't be among the kinds of people that would lead me astray? Yes, 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 blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's our big problem these days. I think our big problem is we assume that we get back into enclaves, we withdraw and spend our entire time at church high-fiving ourselves because of our right theology over and against the people down the street. That's church life for people, and it's not it. It's got to be engaged with people. So the question is, what motivates you in ministry? Because the purpose of RYM's philosophy of ministry is not simply for you to speak into others' lives, but it's to look into your life as well. What is motivating me through this process? Why am I tempted to withdraw? What are my triggers in ministry? Let me be as self-disclosing as I can possibly be. So I had a, I had a conversation, wow, 30 years ago. It'll be 30 years ago next month. That is amazing to me. And it was with the guy that I was doing youth ministry with uh, and had been working on staff for a year but volunteering with for five years. This man knew me very, very well. And I remember going to him, and he was kind of considered himself a lay counselor uh, and um, used to always love to ask people this question, um, do you know how you come across to other people? Isn't that the worst question you could ask anybody? Like, who wants to know the answer to that question? I did when I was 22 years old and about to leave to go to seminary, okay? It was May of, I know it was May of 1991 because I was three months away from going to Jackson, Mississippi to go to Reform Seminary. And I looked at my youth director and I was kind of like, you know what? You talk to all these other people about that. You never asked me, you know, how it is that I come across the people. I think maybe, and I literally remember thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to seminary. I could use some pointers. A little, little rough, sand off the rough edges there, Don. Help me out right here. So he looks at me, he was like, okay. He goes, but can you give me a couple weeks before we talk about it? I was like, uh, sure, all right. Nothing off the top of your head? No. So we set up lunch for two weeks later. I walk into his office two weeks later and I sit down. I was like, you ready to go to lunch? He said, yeah. He goes, but I actually like to start talking here. Is that okay? Sure. And uh, he said, look, I just got a real quick question for you. When is your mother's birthday? Okay, now bear with you for a second. I have what we might refer to as a complicated relationship with my mother. Um, not complicated in the sense that there's some big mountain of, uh, of problem between us. By God's grace, um, 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 we're not. We're in a good space at this point. Uh, but growing up was a little tough. She was going through a difficult time when I was growing up, um, something I didn't learn until I was in my late 20s, which was a little piece of information I could have used a little earlier on, by the way. But it was a very complicated relationship. And what I had done in feeling like, and whether I was or not, I'm not going to adjudicate here, feeling like I had been sinned against by her. But being sinned against, I decided to sin against her by basically just doing this. See ya. And just withdrew. And I knew it. And what happened was I began to sort of have a, have a relational style that was known with a disengagement and pulling away from people, not walking into situations because I knew that that was going to be prickly and I just don't, I just don't want to deal with it. What had happened was it had grown up through my five years of college to be just a true, genuine insensitivity. So I stand there and I look at my, my youth director, literally one question, and I was like, I, I didn't get her anything. Nothing. Goose egg. Not a thing. As a matter of fact, the day after, my dad was like, you know, you forgot your mother's birthday. And I was like, oh, yeah, happy birthday. Completely blew it off. I love how you're looking at me being like, oh, my gosh, you're awful. That's what I felt in that moment because somebody first, first time anyone ever asked me about it. And I said, yeah, I, I didn't get her anything. He said, yeah, I know. She told me. He said, it really hurt her feelings. 
He said, you know, Les, you talk about how you come across. He said, for five years, you're just the life of the party of this youth ministry. You come in, you say your funny things, you're our skit guy. I can count on you to come in and entertain everybody. He says, but you know, in five years of this ministry, I really don't think that anybody actually really knows you. He goes, I'm not sure anybody's going to miss you when you're gone to seminary. He said, you know something, I'll bet, what else? I think you were really uncomfortable at... Um, at David Fly's funeral a couple of months ago. So David Fly was a guy who was not necessarily in our youth group. He had visited a couple times, but he was involved in another youth group in town. And uh, David had died. Um, listen to this. David had died because he was on his way over at 3 a.m. to his first cousin's house so they could go hunting. Uh, and he knocked on the back glass door because his cousin wouldn't answer the door. Well, his cousin, he didn't know, had been drinking... Uh, profusely the night before, and had passed out on his couch. Well, when he was awoken by his cousin's pounding, he assumed that it was a thief that was trying to break in, at which time he pulled up his shotgun and killed his own cousin through the glass door of his back, of the back of his house. Top 10 most tragic funerals I've been to. And he said, you know something, listen, my youth director, he goes, I'll bet you when you were there, you didn't know what to do with your emotions. Because I'll bet you in that moment, you felt like you were supposed to be real sad, but you like didn't know how to like well up emotion on behalf of the person. He said, because what happens is, Les, over time, as you begin to close off painful parts of your life, you can't selectively numb the things that are hard. Everything numbs. And you get to where you can't feel anything at all. He said, look, you want to know how you come across to people? I think that there might be a certain cross-section of our group that might think you come across as a superficial jerk. So sensing that I needed to be alone, Don went off to lunch without me and left me to myself, <laughs> which he should have. <clears throat> but here's the thing. So that was, that was 30 years ago. And to be honest with you, there were about 10 years of therapy after that conversation, probably one of the most meaningful conversations of my life at age 53. But what, in, the, in the 10 years after that, I had a lot of working through to do. Because in some ways, I do think there was a little bit of unfairness in the way that he talked to me. He didn't necessarily have a lot of gray stuff in the way he was talking. But maybe he wouldn't have had the same effect had he come with a little softer uh, glove. I don't know. But in the midst of wrestling through all that, it created a trigger in me. And that trigger is whenever I get the sense that someone is going to expect something from me that I may not be able to give them. Now, you think this is not still haunting me? Let me bring you into my existential moment. So two months ago, the phone rings, and it's Brady and I's friend. It's Fish Robinson, who is one of the pastors in town. He also happens to be the chaplain for the sheriff's department. And Fish gets on the phone and said, you need to get in your car and you go to the hospital right now because Jessica Ellington's family has all been killed. Jessica is a young mom, 38 years old. Her husband, Matt, and her two children, aged six and four, were killed in a car accident about two months ago. Okay, so I get in my car, and I've got, what, six minutes from the church to the hospital or something, CC? What do you think I'm doing in those six minutes? I'm more triggered than I could ever be, because all I'm thinking about is someone's about to ask something of me that I don't know that I'm going to be able to give to them. See what I'm saying? It's a legitimately sad moment, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to have that. It's a trigger. Now, here's the deal. Why am I telling that very embarrassing story? I don't want you to know that, but... If I don't, you're not going to see what I mean when I say everybody's got something like that. 
There is a thing that I have in, that I've nurtured in my life due to all kinds of factors. Some of it is my personal family history, some positive, some negative. Some of it are decisions I made in the past to continue to wrestle or to, or to wrestle poorly or badly about my, my sin. Others of it are other environmental factors. There's all these things that went up to it, but I come into this equation as a disciple myself. And when I go seek to be incarnated among the lives of the people God has called me to minister to, I come as a disciple myself. And the, the beauty of what the way God works, though, in ministry is, is when I begin to all of a sudden allow those things to be real, to me identify them, know what they are, start to work through them with healthy people, like counselors and therapists and pastors and really good friends, I can finally start to see something, that I'm incarnating myself into the life of people in a way that I wasn't before. So the point of the matter is, you are the biggest imprint of the culture of your youth ministry. You're the biggest one, and that means you're dragging you and your big old U-Haul worth of issues behind you. And everybody's got them. Are you aware of those? In order to be incarnational, there is going to be a cost from your own soul. And that cost is, can I be honest about the things that's happened to me, that God's led me through, and to allow those things not to discourage me in ministry? Okay? All right. Let's finish this up, and then we'll have time for questions at the end. Um, we, we, we use a graphic in RYM. Uh, we use a bunch of graphics in RYM, but I want to use one that actually is going to be peripherally helpful. And it's a question that we were entertaining right here. Okay? That is, there are three aspects to our philosophy of ministry or the way that we talk about our philosophy of ministry. We have our theology of ministry. That's a little arrow. We have our philosophy of ministry. And we have our method, methodology of ministry. Okay? So what we have is this graph of knowing something that we've already said. We want to make sure that what I've come to believe, what I've come to embrace and, and care very richly about is not going to be contradicted by the things I do. What do we call people who act in a way that's contrary to what they say they believe? Hypocrites. RYM is an extended exercise in ridding you of, of, of ministry hypocrisy. One definition. What do we mean by theology? Well, by theology, we mean what we call our principles. Now, some of you want to get a little more philosophical about that and say, well, Les, actually, I would say my philosophy is the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's great. Some of your traditions lead you to that, others to different catechisms and confessions. But one of the problems with the great catechisms and confessions is they don't, they don't, they're intended to serve a person for a lifetime. You don't have people for a lifetime in youth ministry. You have them for maybe four years, maybe, depending on how quickly you can get them plugged in. And for that reason, you have to make choices, I don't make choices. I just give them the Bible. I promise you didn't teach them the whole Bible in four years. I promise you. Okay? What we're saying is, if you're going to make choices, here's some that we think are actually pretty good choices. So what are our principles? Give them to me. Scripture. Scripture. Justification. Justification. This is the audience participation portion of the show. Justification. Sanctification. Do anybody remember... Um, uh, Cajun man from SNL. 
Justification, <laughs> sanctification. And what's the last one? Glorification. So here's the deal. You get done with your training, whether that's informal training or formal training. You got all this learning, all this knowledge. And what can be very crippling is being like, well, what in the world do I talk about now? I mean, you, I guess you could throw a dart at your systematic theology notes or something and start there. Yeah, we, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit. Oh, great. Two thumbs up for the Holy Spirit. Why are you talking about that? I don't know. Because? Because. It's good. What we're saying is, hey, I tell you what. Sweep away, the, sweep away all the confusion. Let us give you something. Just try it. Let us give you something that you can center some things around in. Let's begin by trying to teach our students what it means to embrace truth. Who are the authorities in your life? I don't listen to authority. Whatever. You look like all the other people who are anti-establishment just like you. <laughs> Every one of those students is listening to an authority. TikTok is an authority. TikTok is wonderful. I love TikTok. I'm not even making that up. I have more fun with TikTok than I ever imagined. I'm all hail to that algorithm because it just makes me happy. I turn on TikTok and it's dogs and people falling down. <laughs> I don't care about anything else. Ginger will tell you. We do it every night. We'll go through, look at what TikToks I say. I have a fantastic like page on the TikToks. They have authorities. What are those authorities? Are you engaging with those authorities? Are you critiquing them? Are you always being antagonistic about them? Please don't do that. Affirm them where you can affirm them. Don't always be the, well, we don't believe in social media here. Okay, good, good. You might as well look at them and said, we don't speak English here. Because that's the whole world. It's their entire world. Is it bad? Yes. But can we do a little entering in, learning incarnational ministry? So authority. Uh, justification. Am I talking to a student about what to do with their guilt? Ugh. My place in this world. Man, we had a suicide yesterday in Oxford. There's a seventh grade girl from um, Oxford Middle School who killed herself. I don't know. I don't, we don't know her. We don't have any connection to her. We've been trying to figure out who she's connected to. But I think to myself, seventh grade, what are you doing? Well, seventh grade, what in the world could you be thinking through? But I'm going to bet you $5 that I doubt that there was a lot of grace inside her heart. She could have had chemical things going, mental disorders, whatever. But that always strikes me what a tragedy that is. Is there a place that my students are coming to where it's good news? Hey, let me tell you this. And I was pounding on this just the day before yesterday at church. Cancel culture being what it is, your church may be the last possible place where forgiveness is attainable to this culture. It doesn't exist. No one's talking about forgiveness. Elizabeth Bruning, my, one of my favorite uh, writers for The Atlantic, um, had a tweet that she put out back in November where she said, there's something wrong with a culture that constantly demands atonement without ever having a conversation about forgiveness. That's cancel culture. It's the best thing I've ever heard about cancel culture. All we want to do is punish each other all the time. And here's the deal. Some of us need to be punished. Thank you, Black Lives Matter. Thank you, Me Too movement. Yes, I said that. Thank you. We needed to be punished for a lot of those things, a very white room. We needed that. But here's the question. Is there a path back? Is there a way back in? Is there redemption? Because the world has nothing except demanding your pound of flesh again and again and again. You may be the only one talking about forgiveness in your world. Number three, we talk about change. Sanctification is the topic of change. There's not a teenager in the world that doesn't want to change themselves. Things about them. Wish I was thinner. Wish I was bigger. Wish I was more muscular. Wish I was taller. Wish I was shorter. 
Everybody's got something they want to change. Wish I wasn't so mad all the time. Why am I so sad all the time? Why, 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 can't, I, why can't I feel motivated? Wow, I wish I was smarter. They all want to change. Am I giving them a vision of how God actually cha- changes us? Because it's different than the way the world does. Right now, the most popular adult male change <sighs> philosophy is um, neo-Stoicism. You know this? What's the number one podcast in America right now? Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan is the new purveyor of the new Stoicism. He will tell you that a commitment to ethics, that's what will change you. You you stick with your values, you stick with your ethics, and that's how you overcome. You put your nose to the grindstone and you do the work. Now, some of you right now are being like, yeah, love that. Okay, is there some truth in that? I'm sure a little bit. But as a totalizing philosophy of life, I don't know. How does Bible say we change? What does that Holy Spirit have to say about that? How does the Holy Spirit work me? How do I know who the Holy Spirit is? How do I find him? You don't think there's questions students are asking about that? Glorification. Why am I here? What am I doing? What do I want out of life? I just want somebody to love me. I want a boyfriend or girlfriend. Man, I give anything to have a girlfriend right now. Because I've never felt more lost than I, than I do right now. Glorification comes in and says, how do I realign my destiny? <laughs> what is my future? What do I expect out of my future? You know? Inadvertently, sometimes we've, we've, we've taught them, and our Hallmark movies helped with this, no offense, ladies, but we've taught them that basically marriage is that thing that will help us. That'll save all your problems, get you right with everything. It's just to find that right man. Glorification speaks to that, does it not? So here's the deal. My guess is you got four years worth of material <laughs> in those topics, right? So we're simply saying, here's a way of looking at, at, at ministry that this is what we b- build our foundation off of. Okay, what about our methodology? Well, we use a word that I'm not sure has been so very helpful. I wanted to make a little bit of a, a slight tweak. Um, we say that our methodology is flexible. Flexible methodology, rigid theology. We use that terminology and there's nothing wrong with it except for one small thing. Flexible does not mean arbitrary. It doesn't mean that I can go and do anything because that's what my context means. What, 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 I, what I'm sort of lobbying for at this point is come up with a better phrase. And what I've come up with is best practices. Our methodology is trying to say, what are the best practices that we have that I've learned from other people that actually fit my context with my particular distinguishing features? That's a better question. Now, that's a, that's a little bit like what, the, what we mean broadly is best practices. Narrowly, we mean our presuppositions. What are the presuppositions? I don't ever understand that. RYM keeps talking about presuppositions. What does that mean? Well, it's one of those underlying assumptions that sort of forms the way that we approach people. It's the mode of your ministry. It's your vibe. Okay? It's your, um, uh, your mojo, if you will. Let me make sure that I get this correct. Is there a Wi-Fi at this place? I don't know if I need it right now. On 5GE, whatever that is. Somebody list for me the presuppositions. I want to make sure. Do we have those written somewhere in somebody's? Okay, here we go, here we go. All right, so we're going to say reform theology. Okay. What's interesting about this particular, um, about this particular um, 
Come to me here. It doesn't even list it here. Pete's sakes. All right, Reformed theology. What are we saying? Remember, this is a presupposition. Presuppositions are the mode of ministry. That doesn't mean we love Reformed theology. That's not what that means. It means that we, we present ourselves to students as if we've come down on a side. Um, now, look, this is one thing that's very counterintuitive. A lot of people look and be like, well, you know, don't do that with students, you know, because they just want generic, you know, uh, straight up Christianity, a mere Christianity. Well, good luck with that. Only C.S. Lewis could get away doing something that's called mere Christianity. What, we, what, what I found in 25 years of campus ministry, when I was involved in the ministry that actually had the name Reformed in its name too, Reformed University Fellowship, in 25 years of dealing with college students, they did not mind that we took a side. As a matter of fact, they very much appreciated it. Oh, so you got a, you got a deal on this baptism. Well, we don't really, we're not going to fight over the baptism thing, but yeah, we got an opinion. Um, wait, sovereignty? What do you do with God's sovereignty? Well, you know, yeah, we're not going to make this a gun to your head issue, but we think we could talk about it. What we're finding is, is when you lay your cards on the table and say, this is who we are, they actually appreciate it more. What is the difference between us and the Baptists, us and the Methodists, us and the Church of Christ? Now, can we all of a sudden create those kind of like, you know, the cage stage Calvinists? You know, people are terrible. Yes, that's always a danger. Uh, but there's other presuppositions that help that. We're just saying we're explicit about it. All right, what was the next one? Church? No, family. Family. In other words, one of our presuppositions is, is we believe that there is a fundamentally powerful unit in that student's life that I cannot consider them in isolation from this most fundamental system that they live in. The family is still going to be the most important fingerprint that gets put on that student's life. Give me the other ones. Demographics. That's a big one. Okay? Demographics. Demographics are this question about what is my context? How many students are here? What are the big high schools in town? What do they do here? What do you do for fun here? Those are great, great questions. Where are they going when they're not at youth group? That's a great question. I learned a lot about that. What's another one? Learning process. Learning process is a little acronym, T-D-O-E-E. -E. Anybody remember what it stands for? Good. That's good. It's actually, it's evaluating and then examining and encouraging. Teach, demonstrate, observe, evaluate, encourage. That's basically the plan by which people come to embrace information. <laughs> now, but we're reformed, though. What do we get preoccupied with? Yeah. In other words, what do you do in your youth ministry? Well, I'm teaching. What do you worry? I'm working on my lessons. Oh, okay, good. Well, are you demonstrating it at all? Are students hanging out with you enough to where they see you in your life? You know, do they see your messy kitchen? That's okay. That's okay. Are they, are, are they, can they observe you? And am I give, are you giving them feedback? I have, a great, uh, I have a great RYM moment. It's probably 10 years ago, 12 years ago. The founder of Reform University Fellowship was coming back to speak at RYM. And uh, he showed up in a room and I was teaching the learning process. He's the one who came up with TDOEE. I was like, oh, great. And he walked in there and I said, yes, teach, demonstrate, observe, encourage, and evaluate. That's what the TDOE stands for. And uh, at the end of the seminar, I was like, okay, Mark, help me. What did I get wrong? Oh, you did just fine. He kind of has this sort of nasally sort of talk like this. And he, he's from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. <clears throat> uh, you just had what problem? Uh, you mixed up encourage and evaluate. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you cannot put 
uh, encouragement before evaluation. You evaluate first, then you encourage. He said, because otherwise you're going to discourage students. I thought that was so profound. Isn't that sweet? Didn't really mean anything, but it was really sort of fascinating. All right, what else? Is church one of those? Church. It means that we look at, we don't look at students as isolated individuals. How are they fitting within the body? Are you getting my point? The presuppositions talk about your vibe. All of these things together give you a certain flavor that's different from other youth directors who haven't thought about it, probably. Okay? So, philosophy. What do we mean by here? And I'm going to finish with this and have time for questions. When we talk about philosophy, we talk about the identification and the deployment of ministry dynamics. What's a dynamic? A dynamic is a process, right? It's, it's an internal process that's going on uh, that defines, <clears throat> that describes a certain uh, aspect of ministry. And in RYM, we try our best to sort of identify for you what we think some of those things are. And we come up with a bunch of them. What is dynamic number one? Well, we already talked about it a little bit. Who are you? Hey, look, y'all need to learn some self-care. Um, yeah, I'll tell you another thing that happened about three years ago, almost exactly three years ago. We've come through a lot of anniversaries. I don't do well in April, <laughs> reflecting uh, on my life this morning. Um, but about three years ago, I was going through a very difficult time. A very dear friend of mine had been uh, let go from the ministry that I had served for so long, and I was very deeply in conflict with uh, some of the forces at B that created that, that circumstance. And um, unrelated completely, and I was venting all the time. It would always happen to me in the shower for some reason. I'd get up in the morning, and I would sort of in the shower have these, these uh, um, imaginary conversations with the people I was mad at. You know what I'm talking about? I would begin the day boiling, right? Well, I get an email from someone who I would have considered a friend, still consider a friend, um, and he had a little something to kind of push back on me. It was a very little something. And I remember sitting at the keyboard of my, of my home office and just being like, all right, tighten up that belt. And I, I, wrote the most, I wrote the most unkind email I've ever written in my life and said things that I deeply and powerfully regretted and, and took him to task. Some of, there, was, there was a kernel of truth in it all, but I had taken and blown it up so much and said it so hurtfully that the, very, the next email I got back from him was like, no one's ever spoken to me that way ever before. And I don't know if I'm going to sleep until I hear from you again that, I've, that, I'm, that, I'm, that I'm sorry <laughs> for what I just did. Well, so I spent, what, the last two years apologizing for that conversation. But here's the deal. I could not recognize that I was unhealthy. You follow me? When you're waking up in the morning and boiling every day, you ain't in a good place. And it might be a good time to stop, write that email, and let it sit for a day and then come back to it tomorrow. That's just one aspect of what I'm talking about. It might mean that you need to take some time off. It might mean that you need to sort of get on a better schedule and stop sleeping until 10 o'clock every morning. It might mean that you need, there's all kinds of things you might need, but you are one of the biggest ministry dynamics that you're going to deal with in your philosophy of ministry. Where are you? What's God, what is God doing with you? Number two, we talk about the avenues of ministry. What are the avenues of ministry for those RYM uh, alumnus? Remember the avenues of ministry? There it comes. Avenues are any way in which we go to get ministry. This is like the smart side of the room over here. Um, I'm impressed by all that. I don't know about you people at all. Um, 
the avenues of ministry are the way in which you can be with people. How can I be with people? I can be with people in a large group. What is that? A large group is anywhere between 25 and 30 people. That's a large group. The dynamics of being a large group take over at that point. Small group. I can be with people in a small group. What is that? Anywhere between 7 and 12. You get over 12, you lose the dynamic. Or, thirdly, I can be with them one-on-one. But here's the interesting thing. RYM wants to teach you what you can and cannot get away with in those three avenues. Because a lot of you are trying to make your large group um, a small group because you're trying to do Q&A with 40 people in the room. And it's getting hijacked because every time somebody says something, those two guys over there think it's hilarious because they're making jokes over it and they disrupt the whole thing. That's not a small group. Vice versa, try to do music and worship with eight people. Come on, y'all, let's sing, sing. It's the most awkward thing in the world. I will bless the Lord. It's terrible. Why? Because it doesn't suit that avenue. You follow me? So we're trying to give you some wisdom in that regard. Learn how many different kinds of small groups there are. Number three, we talk about the stages of group development. Remember the stages of group development where we talk about how you end up uh, coming in contact with people? We say early on in the ministry, you know, you have contact with individuals. Just you and some individuals. And that's an early part of any ministry. How am I connecting with them? Am I looking at the world through their eyes? But eventually, we're hoping that some of these people develop friendships. And you know how they got to know each other? Just because they were at youth group, right? There's little pockets of people. I'm not talking about cliques. I'm talking about friendships. Follow me? That's stage two of group development, where you're seeing those people start to make little bonds that don't necessarily have to have you in the midst of it. The third stage is where we got all these little pockets of people. Some of them are still individuals, right? But a lot of them started clumping together into a whole cell of people. And they talk about themselves as if they're part of this group. When I was doing campus ministry, I always knew when I got to stage three because people started dating people cross uh, cross um, group, right? So Scott started dating Amy. And it was like, what? She goes to that other church. And it was like, it was a big deal, right? Because they only had my ministry in common. Does that make sense? Stage three. Stage four is what we call the leadership uh, development stage. That is where you're looking at people to say, can I teach other people how to do stages one and two? Can I teach them how to meet with people and how to have a conversation with another human being? Might be a bridge too far for a high school student. Might not. And can I teach them how to build other groups of people? And then finally, we have stage five, which is what we call a true group. A true group is basically when all of these things are functioning and your leaders are helping out with stages one and two. Now, why do we go through all that? Because you got to know where you are. Locate yourself in this ministry or in, this, in these stages and you'll be able to identify what needs the most help. Like for some of you, you're super frustrated and your church is frustrated because you're not having a big Wednesday night meeting. And you're like, I don't know anybody. I, I, give me some time to get to know some people, okay? And maybe that'll start to form after a while because typically you probably need to start a big group meeting until this gets up over 25 or 30. You follow me? It can help you locate you where you are and what's needful. And if I've got people to where I've got a mass of people, I've got to start talking about who my leaders are. How do I train those people? How do I, how do I empower them? How do I let some stuff go for them? That is not easy with youth. Okay? But here's the deal. Watching those stages is a ministry dynamic. 
Something that we're hoping that you gain some expertise in. How am I doing on time? Oh, gosh. What time is this over? 45? Or it's already over? Shoot me straight. Do I have five more minutes? John, do I have five more minutes? Thank you. Needed an authority there. Number three. Number four, sorry. Evangelism and discipleship. Do I have a workable model by which people are coming to be confronted by the faith? Um, yeah, in many ways, I think that this is one of the biggest grounds that we've got to work on because it changes every decade. Every decade, there's a different way of approaches to talk to students about what it means to come to faith in Christ. You have a highly skeptical youth group, especially if you've got public school kids. They have imbibed the culture's uh, betrayal. Young people today, in massive amounts, look at the... Um, at evangelicalism in general, as being bought and sold by the Republican Party and their allegiance to Donald Trump. If only people uh, less than ages 25 and younger could have voted in the last election, um, Trump wouldn't have won one state. Okay? It just tells you something. But what that means is the marriage of evangelicalism with the Republican Party means that the generations coming up immediately suspects you. Immediately. As soon as they find out you're one of those people that believes the Bible. I'll give you an example. How about this? So again, we moved into our new building August the 4th. It was our first worship service, August 4th. Beautiful white building, sits upon a hill. I just, oh, I'm in love with it. Um, the first week, it had to be like the first week, maybe four or five days after moving in to the building, we go out to the back and we find on the place where we have the dumpster and one of our signs, someone has come and spray painted F Trump 2020. And we were like, okay. <laughs> Which is funny, because I'm not a Trump supporter myself. Where would they have gotten that idea? Oh, you ready? It's a white evangelical church. They assumed. And what's funny in the state of Mississippi, it's a pretty safe assumption. Here's the deal. I couldn't have cared less about the graffiti. It was off in 30 minutes. Like, we got this fantastic church administrator that was out there to come scrubbing on. It was gone, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. It was so hurtful to me to think, man, okay, that's the default in the minds of the people we're being called to minister to, and it's your deal, too. And so talking about evangelism is a dynamic that has to be ever revisited with a generation that's more and more skeptical and a culture that's more and more secularizing. Okay? Look, what, what was the point of today's lesson? The point of today's lesson is, what do we mean by a philosophy of ministry? And what I'm trying to get you is to think about is my philosophy of ministry is built off of these three items that develops a culture that has all of these variables that take place inside of it and hopefully produce an organization of my youth that live in consistency with what I say I've come to believe and love. If you're even starting that conversation with your youth leaders and your church, you've done an amazing thing. So I think your time here is valuable. Questions or comments before we wrap up and head for lunch? Yes, ma'am. Lynn. I remembered. No, no we, do, we do a meeting, we just don't go over an hour because you have to respect time. You have to respect people's time. If we get to an hour, we shut down no matter what we're doing. It doesn't matter how important. Or we let the people go who have something to do. I mean, one of the things about staff management I've learned is, is you just got to be very careful. Make sure those meetings also have to have purpose. Now, don't get mad. CC roll eyes because we haven't done this in the last year. But normally I have an outline uh, that we do for our... We, we rotate four different kinds of staff meetings. We do a business meeting, uh, we do a training meeting, we do a prayer meeting, 
And then we do a fellowship meeting where we go out to lunch together. Okay? So each week of the month, there'll be a different theme. And again, we haven't been able to do this last year because the pandemic threw us all girly-whirly. So we're fixing that up. It's a great question. Yes? Yeah, I mean, some of that has to do with my prior relationship to him. Well, I had that same advantage. Um, so I, I'm, I am pastoring a church that I attended um, as an ordained minister. I'm not really a member of the church. That's a BCO technicality. But I attended that church for 18 years before I became its pastor. Um, so I had a leg up that a lot of other people are kind of like, we don't want to hear from you <laughs> because you had it too easy in that regard. But that was okay because I had a good relationship with people, generally speaking, or at least I thought, uh, with most people. Um, and so they allowed me to come in and start to ask these questions because they wanted me to help them ask those questions. So that's one of the reasons why I say it's very hard to follow a successful pastor uh, because, and, and successful even in his own eyes. Because if, if they believe it's successful, he doesn't he has a reason to want to ask those kinds of questions. But I do think that I can just pick up my RYM manual, take those graphics, and just start drawing them. I remember asking this question in my first staff training when I was in campus ministry. And someone said, just teach them what you got at, 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 uh, at training. And sit down and walk through them. And the funny thing was, is as I began to try to give it to other people, stuff started occurring to me about my own ministry. But I do think that for most guys who have been mildly successful, moderately successful in any kind of business endeavor, they understand that we need to do this. I think ruling elders respect this conversation a whole lot more than teaching elders do in my experience because they're saying, okay, now we know why we're here. We know what we're going through. But we tend to think purely in theological terms and explain stuff, you know. Does that help? Is that part of your question? That's where I would start. I'd be like, you know, they drew this graphic at RYM, and that's really interested. I'm trying to figure out where we fit in this and blah, blah, blah. That'd be what I was going to do. Do you have your hand up back here? Or? John. I don't know, do I? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I, yeah. Well, going into a situation where there's already equal pathology, and I'm not in a position to be the authority to do that, is always hard. And you need to go ahead and admit to yourself that this is going to be a difficult run. And because it happens all the time. A, a staff member will come in with a very self-conscious way of looking at ministry and doing ministry, and what it does is it starts to highlight the deficiencies of the system that I'm operating in. Does that make sense? And then all of a sudden you become an antagonist. That's where you got to have some savvy in the midst of that and don't blow it up unless you've got another job that you know you want to take. Because it's not necessarily worth blowing up. Of course. Of course it's gradual, but it's also thoughtful as well, knowing that I can't come in and make those changes right out of the gate with guns a-blazing, but I can ask questions. I mean, and again, part of that incarnational thing, John, this is kind of what you and I were talking about during the break. Part of this incarnational thing is it's not going to happen unless I'm with you and we're doing some measure of life together. Now, some of you are being like, my lead pastor is an introvert and he goes home and he has these clearly defined walls. Okay, don't let that bother you. Just get on his schedule. Hey, once a month, can we just sit down? I feel like I'm kind of thinking through and trying to work through all these questions in ministry. Can we just kind of have some 
you know, chat time back and forth, that might be a nice first step uh, to move in that direction. Hey, you guys are great. I just want you to know my appreciation for you raises every year that I'm in a lead pastor role and not on campus anymore. So thank you for what you do. And if no one says uh, that what you're doing is, if no one tells you that what you're doing is valuable, I can tell you that this is where the action is, right here. I mean, for the, for the next 20 years or so, it, it's all in your hands. <laughs> so don't screw it up. I'm just kidding. <laughs> y'all have a great afternoon. It was great to see y'all.